Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm Fenella Kernabun. I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas, and it is a great pleasure to have your company today for what is a very important topic. Before we begin proceedings, though, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all meet, that we live, we work, and we share ideas wherever you happen to be joining us today. I also acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation because it is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our own knowledge, our teaching, our learning, and our research practices within our university, may we also pay respects to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Again, we welcome you to our panel conversation today, a very important one, very timely, the case for vaccination. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to your moderator, Tegan Taylor, who is the host of the ABC podcast, CoronaCast, and she's going to be managing and, uh, of course, asking all the questions for today's conversation. So, Tegan, over to you and thank you. Thanks, Vanilla, and hi, everyone. I'm joining you from Yugara and Turrbal land. And a year ago, we were racing to find a vaccine for COVID-19, this new pandemic that was going around the world, experts didn't know if it was going to be possible for us to make a vaccine at all. And now here we are in Australia with two very safe, effective vaccines, a third one on the way. So like we're home and hose now, right? No, they only work if people get them in their arm and an overwhelming majority needs to do that for them to really make a difference here. Australia and especially Sydney is really hurting from extended lockdowns and getting vaccinated is our pillar, one of our main pillars to get out of it. So to get our heads around COVID-19 vaccines, to answer your questions, we have some experts from the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. I would like to introduce them to you now, and they are Professor Cheryl Jones, Paediatric Infectious Diseases Physician and Clinician Scientist, Head of School and Dean of Sydney Medical School, and a member of ATAGI, the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. Professor Kirsten McCaffrey, Principal Research Fellow at the Sydney School of Public Health. She's a respected voice in shared decision-making, health literacy, and the assessment of psychosocial outcomes. Professor Ramon Charbon, the inaugural clinical chair and professor of infection prevention and disease control at the University of Sydney and Western Sydney Local Health District within the Sydney Nursing School and Marie Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity. Ramon is an expert in infection control and emergency nursing, and Mustafa Dahir, pharmacy graduate, current doctor of medicine student with experience in community vaccinations. In all of his spare time, who has any at all, Mustafa uses social media to improve people's understanding of health. He's on TikTok. His name is at Mustafa, and he has over 200,000 followers. We will actually watch one of Mustafa's TikToks in a bit. But before we do that, let's get started. I'd love to start off just with Ramon, give us a sense of the landscape at the moment with this Delta variant, how it's changed uh, the landscape of COVID in Australia, especially. Thanks very much, Tegan, and good afternoon, folks. Um, so this most recent outbreak in New South Wales and indeed Australia is of a new variant of coronavirus, and this is the Delta variant. And it's certainly not our first outbreak, but this particular outbreak in this variant uh, exhibits a number of really interesting characteristics which are different to other outbreaks. We know that in this outbreak, in this variant, um, the virus is more transmissible by 
means such as contact, droplet, and airborne. And um, because of that, uh, and because of some other population-based factors, um, it's, it's much more easily spread uh, between people, between communities and families. And so we're faced with a situation now where we've got um, really um, uh, large volumes of uh, virus in the community, in populations spreading quite quickly. You would have seen on the news today, more than 600 cases um, uh, for New South Wales. Uh, a large majority of them located in two particular local government areas. Um, and importantly, um, we've got large numbers of individuals who, when diagnosed, are not in isolation um, or, are not, or are in the community, which means that there is a real risk that others are exposed to the virus and the virus is spread um, from person to person. And so this is a really very serious situation um, that we have, uh, that we face at the moment. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, all the more reason as to why we should throw everything we have uh, uh, in our toolkit to prevent and control this infection. And of course, vaccination is a really important part of that. Yeah, so and we're really here specifically to talk today about vaccination. Cheryl, I wonder if you could just give us an idea of what risks and benefits ATAGI is weighing when it's uh, approving vaccines, and in particular, what we know about the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines that we've currently got access to. Absolutely. Good afternoon, everyone. And I just need to preface saying I'm giving my personal view today, not the view of ATAGI as an ATAGI member. So, but the things that we weigh up are firstly the effectiveness of, of the vaccine, particularly against causing disease against COVID. So that means getting into hospital, having serious disease, admission to intensive care or death. And that's the main goal of the vaccination program. So how effective are these two currently licensed vaccines and more to come? The second context we have is what are any harms from these vaccines that we can prove? And that very important signal, but rare, that came through from the AstraZeneca vaccine was this clotting syndrome, the TTS syndrome, where our platelets react in some people abnormally and cause quite serious clots. We look at the frequency of that and are there any groups of people where that may be more uh, common so we know what advice to give. The other thing we have to take into account is the availability of vaccines but also the circulating context of the virus. So we are now in Greater Sydney and many other places with this very serious Delta virus that's infectious, that causes serious disease, admissions and even death in young people. And we need to then put that in the risk benefit equation. Just to follow up there, Cheryl, one of the questions we've had before the event started was around like age-based recommendations and how that shifts in an outbreak versus not an outbreak. Like it seemed like, yeah, okay, if you're over 60, your risk is higher of, of catching COVID. If you're under 60, maybe don't get AstraZeneca. That's really shifted, especially for people in Greater Sydney. At no time was there ever don't get a particular vaccine from a target. I think that's really important. So the very clear message was these are two approved vaccines for all eligible individuals, except where there are particular medical contraindications. But where we have availability of vaccine and a choice is available, when there was low circulating virus or low uh, variants of concern, then a situation could be where we would target uh, based on risk of these rare side effects, 
uh, in certain age groups. So that was why in younger age groups where we had a choice of vaccines available and not much, no community transmission and not much virus of concern, you would put an age-based recommendation about a preference for Pfizer. But at any time, all people could have any vaccine if they were eligible. We are now in a situation in Greater Sydney where we have, a, and some other areas, where we have a very serious strain causing high rates of infection, admissions and death, but also serious consequences in our community. That means that everyone at all age groups has a greater benefit from all vaccines, including AstraZeneca, um, to stop serious disease, in themselves, admission in themselves, and passing on to vulnerable people as well. Rebecca's asked a question, which I'm going to put to Kirsten. Why can't authorities just mandate that everyone has to get a vaccine, given that we're in such a health crisis at the moment? Thanks, Tegan. And hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Mandates are such a topical question. The problem with mandates is that it risks backfiring. It risks um, forcing people into a corner and people who are undecided or hesitant, it can push them into being um, unwilling to be vaccinated. So um, it's not and if it's not the best strategy um, to get the maximum number of people vaccinated. And really what you need to do is, you know, work on strategies targeting that undecided group who need questions answered, who are unsure about certain things, safety issues, questions. You need to make vaccines really available and really easy to get um, rather than kind of blanket mandates, which can um, really backfire. So one of the people who are trying their best to... Uh, Spread the good word is our friend Ramon here. Uh, Ramon's on TikTok, like we said. He's more than just his TikTok account, but it is pretty cool. Um, we might actually play one of Ramon's TikToks and then talk about what role social media can play in helping debunk myths. Someone tell me which ingredient in the COVID vaccine you guys are worried about. Thank you for everyone that's been answering. So we had someone that was worried about the last ingredient. Someone mentioned SM102 and someone mentioned graphene oxide. Now let's actually talk about these ingredients. These are the ingredients of a blueberry. Just because an ingredient sounds scary doesn't mean it actually is. Trust science people, get vaccinated. So Mustafa, can you talk a bit about what you're trying to achieve with your TikTok um, stuff? You're obviously already like working as a pharmacist, studying to be a doctor, like you've got a bunch of stuff going on. Why TikTok? I think TikTok is one of the largest growing social medias um, at, at this current point in time. Um, and I think it's the easiest way to reach out to so many people. Um, it's quick It's quick videos. So they're under about under one minute. And um, that's really good to keep people's attention, right? So if you upload a large 10-minute video, for example, sometimes people will click away after the first 30 seconds or they won't even click on the video if it's too large. The good thing about TikTok is short and concise information that you can just send through um, directly to nearly everyone because um, once you upload a video, it circulates on something known as a For You page. And um, when people are interested in a specific topic or subject, um, the hashtags on your video will bring your video onto their screens. So um, a lot of people who are, for example, hesitant uh, regarding COVID or are unsure, um, the algorithm would pick that up as well if, if they've watched a lot of COVID conspiracy videos or whatever it may be. Um, and then that would allow my videos to pop up on their screens and hopefully um, it can reach out to as many people as possible. Uh, my approach to uh, making videos is to um, make sure it's as simple as to understand as uh, possible. Um, so my target audience isn't um, like people with bachelor degrees or professors or whatnot. Um, my kind of uh, method of thinking when making videos is to make sure that even, even maybe a 10-year-old can understand my videos. 
Um, and in that video that you saw there, I had posted originally a video um, asking people which ingredient they were worried about in the COVID vaccine. And then when I got about 30, 40 responses, I took that video down and I made a reaction video pointing out the ingredients that um, they spoke about. And uh, then I identified that it was actually the ingredients of a blueberry. Um, it wasn't actually the ingredients of the COVID vaccine. So I, I just wanted to highlight, it was just, it's just a way to highlight to people that um, just because an ingredient is difficult to, to you know, understand or what it does and it's not something we're all familiar with, doesn't mean it's necessarily harmful. Kirsten, how does um, Mustafa's approach fit with what we know is best practice in terms of debunking? <laughs> Bearing in mind, of course, he's sitting right here, so like, don't make him cry. <laughs> Look, um, Mustafa's given a really great example, a really brilliant example of how to do it well. Um, first, he's, as he said, he's making the message clear and simple um, and writing it for an audience um, with, you know, age 10 and age 12. And we know that typically when we write health information or or develop health information, we develop it for people who've got university educations and, and that's just not going to work. Um, the other thing that Mustafa talked about is making it short and sharp. And also what we want in messaging is having clear, actionable advice and, and relating that to everyday things. I mean, like the blueberry, that's a, a brilliant example of, of relating the information to something that everyone can understand and and use um, and also of course is using TikTok um, not relying on old traditional forms of media we need to get better at using all sorts of different platforms to communicate um, in effective in effective ways and, and this, this was a great example and there's a question here is there any information on whether vaccines reduce transmission from vaccinated to unvaccinated people this feels like one for Cheryl Yes, so there is emerging evidence that it does, it's not complete um, reduction, but there is definitely strong evidence that you approximately halve, depending on the vaccine, that risk of passing the virus across. What we know is these vaccines don't stop the virus attaching to your cells in the first place, so causing that infection by and large, but what it seems to do is reduce that likelihood of how likely you are to pass it on and also for how long you might shed the virus. Um, a question from uh, Kelly. I'm going to put this one to you, Ramon. Uh, Kelly's asking, how do we know that the vaccine's going to be safe long-term when we haven't had a chance to do long-term clinical trials because we've only sort of just got them? That's a good question. <clears throat> Thanks, Kelly. So these vaccines, like all vaccines, follow a fairly systematic and standardised approach to the development of you know, of them. So they haven't been developed by any particularly special or truncated means. It's the same, um, you know, um, phase trials, phase one, phase two, eight, and so forth and so on. And but and and what we've done in, in this time frame is to um, work as fast as what we can to develop the evidence around how they work and what kinds of adverse effects or side effects occur in them. What we've seen in the um, adverse events around these vaccines uh, is what occurs with any medication, any vaccine. And so as they emerge and as they are used over time, the more they use, the more information we gather about how they work, how efficient they are, what kinds of side effects that do occur. And um, the important part of that really is, you know, when you do go and get your vaccine and, you know, you do get these surveys by text message or by SMS about, do you have any reactions from the vaccine? It's important that you fill that out, even if you have no response or no side effects or even mild effects, because the more information we gather about these reactions, however small or large they may be, 
the better it is for everybody. So we should expect um, and, and have confidence in these vaccines in the same way that we have confidence in other vaccines and other medications more broadly. Cheryl, do you have thoughts to add to that? Only that, again, we have to put in the context of the harms we have from this virus. This virus causes clots. This virus causes serious disease of our lungs and death. And that's far, far greater and far, far more likely than these rare these effective vaccines. And only also to add, I was one of those people 12 to 18 months ago that was really frightened as a vaccine and virus expert that we might not have vaccines and now we have a number around the world they're going to get us out of this situation. Mustafa did you have your hand up just then? Yes um, just to add on to Ramon's point um, I agree with everything he said um, a lot of the, a lot of what I've spoken to people a lot of their points are that they think the vaccine was whipped up in something like a week or two and, and they've just come up with all the research on the spot um, I think it's important to note that a lot of the research that we're basing the vaccines around has existed for decades. So, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine, we're using adenoviruses. This isn't something, this isn't the first time we've ever had adenoviruses. For example, most of our other vaccines use that same kind of method to vaccinate people. Um, and with the uh, mRNA technology, although this is probably the first time we've applied it, there, there are papers dating back to 2012 um, about mRNA vaccines. So this isn't this isn't new. Um, this research has existed for a long period of time, and it's based on decades worth of research. So I think um, we always talk about future um, uh, regards to long term uh, side effects, but we're not taking into consideration that we we've got plenty of data from every other vaccine we've ever developed. That's a really good point, and we've actually had a couple of questions from Kath, uh, from Francis, Bronwyn, and others, basically asking versions of the same thing, which is having conversations with people that you love or relationships that are important to you where these people are hesitant or maybe they've been listening to misinformation about vaccines. Kirsten, how can people navigate those conversations without completely burning bridges? Yeah, it's such a challenge, isn't it? And I think so many of people have faced this difficulty and whether you're, you know, whether you're talking about your, you know, your grandparents or, you know, cousins or whether you're a practitioner and you're talking to, to a patient. Look, I think the first advice is to be um, to be respectful and, and to listen, to listen to the concerns because people do have genuine questions and concerns. Also recognise that you don't need to go into battle about everything and decide which battles are worth going into. Um, the other advice that I think is really wise is to have conversations. If you're going to challenge someone's views or beliefs, do that in private, not in public, so that there's a potential for loss of face. Um, and also the other thing I'd say is we know that personal stories are really are, can be really influential. They're more engaging than bald facts and more relatable and understandable. So you could, for example, um, rather than try and fight with facts, which people kind of blow off and try to, you know, argue against with other counterfacts, could try talking about personal stories about individuals who have had bad experiences, died, got long COVID, and make those stories um, relatable to the person you're talking to, to. So similar age group, similar type of person. Um, the other advice that's given, um, which I think is helpful if you do want to go down the kind of fact route, is to use something called the truth sandwich, which is a quite quite neat little thing. It sounds thing. delicious. <laughs> it does sound delicious, doesn't it? Basically, you start there with um, stating the truth clearly and simply. Then you try to, to debunk 
the um, the myth or the conspiracy that's that's being talked about by your friend or colleague, and then go back to the truth again and, and clearly restate the truth. And that works because not only do you repeat the truth, you say it twice so it's more memorable, but you say it first and last, which almost always also makes it more memorable too. So those are a few, those are a few techniques. And the other thing people say is to talk about very positively about your own vaccine experience. So normalize vaccination. Ramon, you had your hand up. Yeah, that's Kirsten's given some really very useful um, advice. For me, one thing that I always remember is it's never actually really about a knowledge-based question. Um, there's always something behind the question itself. And that's often things such as access to vaccination, you know, some social issues around peer pressure in family family settings or local settings. And so I try to understand what might sit behind the question that seems to be about knowledge um, when it's actually about other things therein. A question from Jenny to, uh, I might put this one to you, Mustafa. The side effects and deaths from these COVID vaccines seems to be much higher than any other vaccines in history, according to VAERS, V-A-E-R-S, yellow card, TGA. Um, how do you want to respond to that? Uh, if, if everyone's that's unfamiliar, VAERS is the um, recording website for America. So if there's any adverse events regarding any um, vaccinations or medications or whatnot, you report it to VAERS. Um, now, that, that is raw data, okay, so that's unfiltered and unchecked. So if you actually go on the VAERS website, it um, gives you a disclaimer to say that everything on this website is not causative, so there's no, there's no causation, okay? So it may say, for example, 10,000 deaths from the COVID vaccine, um, but these are not confirmed. So this could be, um, any, anyone can report onto VAERS, to be honest, it's not just healthcare professionals. So I think there was someone um, on TikTok who made a point of this um, by claiming to VAERS that the vaccine turned him into the Incredible Hulk. And VAERS recorded it. VAERS actually recorded it onto their website, okay, because they do legally have to put it up there. Now, it's up to the FDA um, in America and the TGA in Australia to confirm and investigate these things. So in Australia, I believe um, this might be outdated information. I think back in um, July, there was around 300 um, reports of deaths regarding the COVID vaccine. But there was only, um, I think, two that were confirmed. And I think that number's increased now. Um, but there was only two that were confirmed. So it's important to note that these numbers that you're finding on VAERS aren't always reliable. And read the disclaimer that does say that this is not causative. Ramon? And just to add to that, as you heard Cheryl say earlier, um, we have to weigh up the risk benefit of you know, vaccine versus infection and disease. We know, globally speaking, that about... Eight out of every 10 individuals who get COVID-19 have a sort of mild to moderate illness. One in every 10 has a moderate to severe illness, and one in every 10 has a severe illness or dies. And so if you compare those kinds of population-based figures to the risks and adverse events from vaccines, in particular, perhaps the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is actually only a fraction of that, it's very easy to see how the risk-benefit ratio can be explained in a way that makes it much more reasonable to say, actually, you know, this is what the risk might mean to me. At the moment, the most popular question on Slido is, how do you explain that Australian health authorities are now recommending AstraZeneca vaccines for under 40s, whereas before the lockdown, it wasn't uh, recommended for younger people due to recognised side effects? Uh, Cheryl? So again, it was never not recommended. So I think people need to be quite clear about that. All of these vaccines have been approved for all age groups. 
What we were saying was when there was low circulating virus and where you had available Pfizer vaccine, then the preference would be to have Pfizer vaccine. Because of these slightly higher risks of, uh, you know, these rare but serious consequences of AstraZeneca vaccine, now we've got a situation there is virus in Greater Sydney and some other regions that is high. You will meet this virus sometime, and it's a serious virus. So that rare, rare side effect across all rage groups is far less than the benefit of protection against this very serious virus. So that changed advice, which has always been there, but it was re-emphasised in the context of a really serious outbreak of this very nasty variant, the Delta variant. A question here from Kathy via Zoom. Kathy makes the point that just hearing about young people feeling pressured to have AstraZeneca and being unable to access their get us access to their choice to receive a Pfizer vaccine instead. And the question is, why focus on people who are hesitant when there are so many people who want the vaccine who still can't get appointments for the vaccine that they want? Who wants to jump on that one? Yeah, I'll just speak quickly on that one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've really got to address these practical barriers. It's easy to focus on vaccine willingness and hesitancy and anti-vax attitudes, but actually there is a lot that we can do um, to improve access to vaccines, making them really easy to get, convenient, close, um, you know, you know, many at all hours of the day, maybe not all hours of the day, but many hours of the day, just really addressing those issues. And I know in Western Sydney now, they've, they're doing all sorts of things to kind of make vaccine, get getting a vaccine really, really easy. And, and you know, we didn't do that as well as we could have done at the, at the start, for sure. Hesitancy is about more than just your mood towards a vaccine as well, isn't it? It's about access and equity. Absolutely. And we know that, you know, um, it's not equal. You know, there are social inequalities in terms of vaccine access, for sure. And barriers like taking time off work, worries about being sick after the vaccine and having to care for children and older people. Also transport to vaccination sites and clinics. Um, you know, these are all things that make it harder um, for people who are socially and economically disadvantaged to get vaccinated. And these these social inequalities absolutely need to be addressed. Mustafa and then Ramon had some um, comments too. Just to add on to that, um, I think it's important to keep things in perspective as well. Um, there are a lot of countries in the world that don't actually have access to any vaccines at all. And I think we're very fortunate to have access to these great um, safe and effective vaccines. Um, I know sometimes, um, you know, you might want the Pfizer instead, but it, it, look, that, that is changing. We are getting more vaccines coming in. I think we're going to have a choice of three vaccines soon. Um, and we're going to be getting the Moderna soon um, and we're going to have more Pfizer coming in. Um, but it is really important to note that all three vaccines are very safe and effective. Um, and uh, some countries, uh, I think I read in Myanmar the other day, was um, don't have access to vaccines at all. And, and people are, are begging for the vaccines and... Um, they can't get it. So I think it's really fortunate that we do have access to at least one or two, and now we're going to get three. Ramon? Yeah, and in addition to that, you know, when I think about ways to um, solve these practical problems, one of the most important conversations that I have had and that we all will ever have will be with our regular trusted general practitioner. If you don't have a regular general practitioner who you who knows you, who understands you, who knows what your... Um, knowledge is like and how you think about the world and your health and welfare, it's very difficult to then have a conversation about what's the pluses and minuses of this vaccine versus another. If you have to sort of doctor shop from medical centre to medical centre, it's very difficult to, 
to you know build a rapport and spend any more than 10 minutes talking about talk to me about the pros and cons of vaccines and so you know getting yourself a regular gp who you know and trust who knows you will help make these kinds of decisions um, that affect you ultimately in the best possible way Absolutely. And Holly mentions uh, a trusted pharmacist as well is a good thing. The stuff is giving a smile there. Um, another question from Slido for Cheryl, who's asking, not, not, you're not asking it, Cheryl, this person is, why should a young healthy person with no comor- comorbidities take a vaccine for a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate? Well, actually, firstly, uh, the Delta variant isn't the uh, as safe as the other variants, so those alpha variants. So that survival rate is actually not as good as you think. So we now have people in their 20s who've been admitted to hospital, who've been admitted to intensive care, and there have been deaths in that age group. So I think don't think this is a, a safe vaccine. But apart from those direct effects of you as a younger person, you know, on preventing disease, very importantly, it's preventing also indirect effects. So your capacity to pass that on to someone that you love or people in your workplace who are more vulnerable. And they are the main important effects across all age groups. Ramon? We know in this particular variant and outbreak, you know, some 70% of cases occurs in either household or workplace clusters. And so, you know, if I'm not vaccinated um, and I live with family, you know, who sometimes might be vulnerable clinically or medically, um, then I pose a risk to not only myself, but to those who are around me at home and even at work. And so that's that in, in part reflects that this disease and this infection and this virus is much more transmissible in these kind of close units. And so it really is about the benefit for everybody more broadly. Mustafa? Um, I think one thing to also focus on is not just survival rate. So everyone says, I'm going to get the virus, I'm going to survive, and then it's going to be A-OK. I think it's really important to note that um, if you do get the virus, there is a high chance of other permanent damages like permanent lung scarring, um, losing taste and smell. I mean, if you ask me, if I can't taste my food, what's the point of eating, right? <laughs> um, but it, other than that, there is a lot of permanent damage and um, that can lead to further complications down the line that will not, not only impact, uh, impact your social circle, your work, um, your ability to work. So you might cause more sick days. So it's not just about survival. I think everyone th- focuses so much on that. And in saying that, that 99.7% um, statistic, I'm not sure where they get it from. Uh, I've seen it a lot on TikTok as well, but that's actually not the case. So even if you um, do a quick math you know, calculation right now, we've had uh, 900 deaths in Australia and um, 35,000 cases in Australia as well. Divide that equals about 2%. So um, 2%, if, if 2% of Australians die from, from the COVID, uh, COVID virus, um, that as a ratio would work as 75,000 Australians dying. I mean, just one is too much, right? So uh, I think it's not just about survival, it's about, you know, morbidity as well. Kirsten? Yeah, just to pick up on Ramon's point, actually going back to that, you no, know, choosing to be vaccinated isn't just an individual decision. It's a decision for that will affect your, your family, your elders, your children, people around you, people who are immune suppressed. It, it's not just about you. It's about it's about much, much more than you. And we often see people doing enormously generous things, actually, for the community in all sorts of ways. And, and this is also something to think about when you're making your mind up about vaccination. So there's a lot of numbers that get 
bandied about. There's this 99.7% survival rate and there's this one in, maybe it's one in 40,000, maybe it's one in a million chance of getting a blood clot or whatever it is. I'd love to talk about how to weigh risk. And I'll start with you, Kirsten, because when numbers get big, our human brains just don't seem to be able to handle it. Yeah, that's so true. We're just not designed really to understand those enormous numbers. Um, it's really hard. The best evidence is to use those pictographs and, and those are um, those sort of little dot diagrams. I don't know if you've seen them with, you know, thousands of little people or thousands of dots, and then you show the absolute frequency of an event occurring. So those have been used by Atagi and other people who are the groups who've developed decision aids to show the likelihood of a serious adverse effect and the, and the likelihood of benefit. Um, so that that's one way. Um, I'm a big fan of of having some sort of contextual or contextual information or reference points. So you know the chances of being struck by lightning, or you know there's there was um, some great examples for some from some advertisers who put together a little um, a little piece on on AstraZeneca and compared the risks, saying you know you're more likely to die from having a bath. You're more likely die to die from eating a hamburger. I think that helps people put those huge numbers into some sort of relatable context. And I think with risk, people understand risk in different ways. So I think we've got to use lots of different techniques to communicate those risks and also have the right comparisons, right? So for a long time, we were just comparing the chance of a serious event from AstraZeneca against not having a vaccine. Well, that's not the comparison. It's the chance of having like having COVID and having horrible effects or having the vaccine. And, you, you know, when you see that comparison, there's no decision in a way, really. So it's about how you present the information. It's got to be presented in lots of different ways and, and try and make it really relatable to people. Ramon? Kirsten just raised a point that Mustafa touched on, you know, this notion of long COVID, you know, coronavirus is this outbreak's only been with us for on average about 18 months and we don't actually know yet what the long-term effects of infection actually are it may very well be that you know there are late signals in terms of what this has done in terms of our lungs our, our other parts of the body and so you know personally i i don't want to take a gamble with um with the disease where we don't know what the outcomes might be when i've seen what it does do to patients and their families um, and, you know, from that perspective, when we're talking about the risk to individuals and to families, as a practicing clinician who saw the very first cases of COVID-19 in, in New South Wales and have seen them all along, I can't tell you how many times I've seen or managed or treated um, individuals who thought that they were bulletproof and thought, oh, this is just a mild illness and, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And when they've got it, the, it their infection has resulted in others who've got it and they've had very serious consequences from their infection and they've felt terrible, really remorseful, um, you know, shame. And so that's a really difficult concept that, you know, I think is not often that visible in terms of how we talk about this disease. Um, and, you know, um, that's very real for a lot of, a lot of people. We've been spared a lot of the pain in Australia up until very recently. Cheryl, did you have something to add? Look, only there's, to follow on from that, there's also the consequences, you know, for our families uh, and also our children who get infected. You know, this particular outbreak in New South Wales, you know, I was out at the children's hospital where I worked the other day and there are over 700 
children infected. People aren't aware of this. And while they themselves are not particularly sick, their families are sick. There's incredible consequences for these children, you know, with food and housing and other effects on them and their livelihoods. So it's not just about the individual, as Kirsten and Ramon had said, it's about the consequences for those around us. Ramon? And if I could just extend on that, um, Cheryl Race is a really nice segue. You know, we have the Royal, we've sort of focused on the health aspect of COVID-19, but as we can all appreciate, there are very serious social consequences of this, of this outbreak. You know, we're all kind of locked in our homes or, you know, have very serious stay-at-home restrictions on, on, on what we can do. And that has profound psychological, social and mental health consequences that are largely unmeasurable. You know, how do you put a price on, um, you know, the suffering and the, the anxiety and the depression that people feel because they are they lack social connection. And so, you know, we have to, I think, in, include that in our narrative and our discussion. Um, and whenever we have these really large numbers of cases and large numbers of cases in the community that are not isolated and are circling in the community, we're going to have longer and longer lockdowns and longer and longer restrictions. And so it's part of the whole suite of our health and well-being, you know, Vaccination is is a really important tool to see us through to be healthy, to have less, as Cheryl has said, less severe disease, less chance of death. But ultimately, it's it's there to help us get through this much more quickly and have much less effects that go well beyond the individual medical process. Yeah, on the social side of things, Kirsten, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's really tough, isn't it? Um, we know that you know people who live alone find it particularly tough. So. Oh, just a reminder to, you know, look out for people, your friends and family who are on their own. We know that people who've had been diagnosed with mental health problems previously um, find it tougher as well. You know, it can be really tough for families. It can be really stressful. Um, and as Ramon said, you know, vaccination is our quickest way out of this. And, and that's what we need to focus on. And of course, you know, we've got to, you know, stay, stay well, physically well, mentally well as we can. And, you know, there are lots of good suggestions about that, going outside, doing exercise, creating some structure to your day, making sure you stay in contact with friends and family, you know, using Zoom, using FaceTime for social, you know, social meetings, all of those things will, will help. So, you know, it's, but it's important. We want to make this, this period, uh, we want to get through it as quickly as we possibly, possibly can. We've got Stephanie saying, and I, or Stefan, sorry, and I'll put this one to Cheryl. What are the risks of a variant emerging that makes our vaccines ineffective? So in the short term, not high, but this is as this evolves, this is why we need to, um, so viruses, just when they're making new viruses, um, get coding errors wrong. So they make some mistakes. Most of the time that doesn't do anything. Sometimes it can make the virus no longer infectious, the children viruses. Sometimes as what's happened with Delta, it gives them an advantage, either making them more likely to uh, cause infection and spread more or cause serious disease. So at the moment, our um, vaccines are highly effective against these variants that we've identified, but that's something where we're going to have to keep monitoring as we go. And while we'll need to tweak some of our vaccines and give uh, boosters potentially um, if this occurs. The great thing is with our technology, we can do that. And with our worldwide global cooperation, you know, we can pick this up rapidly. 
we had a couple of questions I've seen coming through about boosters. Um, how regularly do you see us getting these? Will it be like a, an annual flu shot? So we don't know the answer to that yet. So there's two reasons we'll have to think about giving a booster. So this, uh, our first priority is getting a, a vaccine, our first dose and our primary course in everyone's arm. And that's where we're focused. But the things we need to think about with boosters are firstly, how long do we have immunity against the virus, the particular strain um, with our vaccines? So we hear about waning immunity and we know that happens with a lot of vaccines. The second thing we have to understand is, are there any new variants that make us think we have to tweak a vaccine or give a booster that may give us better protection? We're waiting to see this information and those information will be considered and then advice around boosters will come likely towards the end of the year. Um, a question for the group. There's I'll sort of merge two questions together. We've got someone saying AstraZeneca can cause clots, Pfizer can cause heart inflammation. What do I do as a young person? And another person saying um, a question that has become very familiar to me over this last year. I want Pfizer, but I'm not eligible. I'm really nervous about AstraZeneca. What should I do? We might start with you, Cheryl. So I would say in if you're living in Greater Sydney, you're going to meet the real virus, the Delta virus. It's out there and it's more likely to cause clots. It's more likely to put you in hospital. It's more likely to give you very long-term serious disease than this very rare risk of a side effect from AstraZeneca. And that's why we're saying at all age groups, you know, please go out unless there's some medical contraindication or you're in a different eligibility group and get an AstraZeneca. And I've even my own family have done that and my young adult family have done that. The other thing is that the causal effect of the um, heart inflammation from Pfizer hasn't proved to be causal yet, but it's actually quite a low risk um, or the low uh, numbers seem to be reported. Uh, it's relatively mild in most cases and it wears off. What we also know, though, is COVID causes heart inflammation, serious heart inflammation of the lining of the heart, of the heart muscle, and can cause death from that. So, again, it's a relative risk. Mustafa? I think it's important to know for everyone that we, what we do in medicine is something known as a risk versus benefit analysis. So we need to consider the risks of being vaccinated or unvaccinated and being exposed to the virus. Um, in saying that, so when we look at the risk of dying, for example, from the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's one in a million. Okay, so there's a one in a million chance of dying from the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, and that's from the clots. But if we look at clots from the from the COVID virus itself, so if you get infected with COVID and you get, um, you know, you're actually a hundred times more likely to get a blood clot compared to the general population. Okay. So it's, it's all about perspective, right? Um, if you say, I don't want the AstraZeneca vaccine and you remain unvaccinated, you are at a very, as, as um, Professor Cheryl said, you're at a very high risk of actually contracting COVID itself. And in doing so, you are at a much higher risk of getting blood clots. Okay. And it's also important to note that we are, since we are aware of this rare side effect, it's actually treatable. So if you are able to look out for the signs and symptoms of the blood clot, you can go to your local GP and pharmacy or whatnot, discuss it with a healthcare professional, and then they can tell you, okay, go to the hospital or no, you'll be fine. And once you are monitored and um, you're treated, you should be fine. And that's what we've noticed. Kirsten? This question speaks to my um, area of interest in terms of health literacy. And 
whenever we make medical decisions, decisions about our health, we're weighing up risks and benefits. And whether that's taking the contraceptive pill, whether that's taking um, medication. Um, In our lives, we do that every day when we get into a car or when we get into an aeroplane. But I think we need as a as a society um, to get better at understanding medical risks and benefits, weighing those up carefully and, and making informed decisions. And, you know, I do that in my work in 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 different different areas. And we use decision aids to help people think carefully about the benefits and think carefully about the harms. But nothing in medicine is is risk free. And um, what we have to do is make the best risk benefit calculation for any given um, decision. And we can do that. We do actually do that a lot all the time. And, and we just need to do that here. And we need to help people do that better. Ramon? And, you know, one of the greatest ways to do that is to talk to your trusted health professional, talk to your regular GP, talk about what does, what, you know, what is TTS, talk about the risk, risks that Cheryl was talking about and avoid places that are unreliable. You know, avoid places like some of the social media platforms where, you know, you might find conspiracy theorists or folks who think that the earth might be flat. And I know that sounds trivial, but, but it's really very important, particularly in the social context in which we live. You know, we all have people in our lives who have dominant personalities, who exercise, um, who, who, who we look up to or think um, make good sense. But that doesn't always extend to decisions around health and welfare. And that's why it's important to have a regular um, trusted uh, GP and pharmacist and nurse who actually understands you and can look at the evidence and weigh this up, as Kirsten and others have said. Cheryl? Look, only to say that Kirsten was speaking about decision aids and there are some fantastic decision aids available um, on the Australian government COVID vaccine website. And that's both for you as an individual talking through, and I've seen in the chat people are asking different personal circumstances, but also for healthcare providers. So if you have those questions about your own risk benefit questions and you want to go through that, look at those resources, but also take that to your health care professional, your GP, your pharmacist, and have that conversation because they're important questions and they can help you work through that. I'd love to talk about how to know if a, a source is trustworthy or not. Mustafa, what are your tips on this? When it comes to uh, reliability, um, for the general public, uh, I think it's important to know what what are the levels of evidence, Okay. So um, speaking from the lowest uh, level of evidence is anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal evidence is he said, she said. Okay, so and for some reason, this is the highest level of trusted evidence we have um, in the community. So I, I see a lot more people saying, oh, my auntie said she got X, Y, and Z from this medication. And they would trust that over, for example, a doctor saying, no, this medication doesn't cause this side effect. Um, that's anecdotal evidence. So I think that's something we need to avoid. Um, or maybe take it with a grain of salt respectfully. So if your auntie does say she does have this side effect, don't just say, no, you're wrong. Mustafa said you're wrong. Um, I think you respectfully take it with a grain of salt. Um, and there are a lot of reliable resources that end with .gov, for example. So if it's a government resource, often it's been um, reviewed by scientists and other healthcare professionals. Um, and it, what you see on Facebook and social medias and um, WhatsApp or whatever you use as a social media that's all as well anecdotal evidence. Kirsten, why are we humans so reliant on anecdotal evidence? 
I think it's just programmed into our genes because we're social creatures. And look, I think we can harness that um, predisposition for personal stories uh, and turn it into good. And that's what really effective communicators do, actually. They use personal stories. And this is familiar with journalists, right? You use personal stories and combine it with facts um, and make the story meaningful and relatable. But um, I think we're also speaking to the need to um, to teach people be- better, perhaps in schools, about having what I would call or we would call critical health literacy. And that's an ability to, to critique the sources of information where you go and find health information, to understand conflicts of interest, to understand what's a credible source and what isn't a credible source. And, you know, Mustafa mentioned um, websites with .gov. For instance, we know Cochrane Reviews are very interesting independent, what's independent, what is evidence, in fact. You know, we could be teaching this, these kinds of concepts in, in schools. And, and um, I think that would that would be helpful. Ramon? Mustafa raises a really, really good example, the auntie. You know, my auntie said this or my auntie had that. So that's a good example of a relationship that's trusted. Of course, everyone's auntie would want to do what's best for you. But that doesn't actually mean that my auntie knows the difference between AstraZeneca or Pfizer or understands viruses. So it goes to this notion of a relationship. You know, if we have a relationship with a GP or a pharmacist who we trust, we're more likely to believe them, understand them, and they will understand you and what drives you, what fears you have, what they think you can accept and what you're prepared to risk take in terms of weighing up the difference between one versus the other. We've got Donna making the great point uh, that connection helps with anecdotal evidence. Putting a face to the source is tricky with websites. So that's just on why humans sometimes find it a little bit difficult. Um, so we're coming very close to our closing, but I, I do want to sort of talk to each of you about what the future looks like. And starting with Cheryl, what are your sort of key uh, tips for people navigating the pandemic over the next sort of six to 12 months? So I think the first thing is we're not going to outrun this virus. It's with us and it's staying in our community and it will keep mutating. So we need to firstly, um, where possible, get a vaccination to protect ourselves and to protect others and to get to a new way of, of living. We'll have to keep some sort of COVID safe measure, but that's good against respiratory viruses anyway. We've learned a lot about how to not pass on infections to our family and colleagues. But the second thing is that um, the amazing thing is that we have these vaccines. It is incredible. And I just think, you know, how the world has done this together. So that gives me great hope that we will continue to share our evidence around the world, continue to innovate and get to a better state to manage this evolving virus and pandemic and also anything we face with in the future. Ramon, if we were to fast forward two years, what do you see the landscape looking like around COVID? That's a good question. I would hope that we would see a situation where there would be very few active outbreaks of this virus. COVID-19 is going to become an endemic disease. In other words, it's going to be with us for a very, very, very long time. But I would hope to see a highly vaccinated population where there are very small numbers of cases that are easily identified quickly um, controlled and prevented. And we have great confidence in um, our healthcare systems um, 
to keep us safe and well. Cheryl um, touches on a really significant um, aspect to this. Um, we're not going to outrun this virus. We have two very, very good vaccines and there will, there will be more to come. So we should also anticipate, if you like, more information, more challenges around, around well, now, you know, do I get Moderna or do I get Pfizer? Antis you know, anticipate that. Think about what can I do to ensure myself against those kinds of tricky situations, like getting a regular GP, like talking to your regular pharmacist, like going to trusted sources of, of truth, and, you know, perhaps talking less to your third cousin's auntie who has a view about, you know, particular vaccines. Kirsten, if, if you could give people just one guiding light to help them make decisions over the next 12 months, what would it be? Gosh, that's a that's a hard one. Look, uh, <laughs> find a credible source. Find someone with knowledge um, who you can trust, um, a trusted place to get advice. And that means, as Ramon said, not your second auntie. You know, you don't trust, you wouldn't trust, trust you, you know, your auntie to give you advice about your car. Um, don't trust them for advice about your um, about your body um, unless they're a medical expert and our medical experts have done just such amazing things and as Cheryl said there's been such innovation during this time it's been a time of immense hardship and will be but there have been amazing medical innovations um, which will which will carry us through so um, let's you know let's hold on to that that positive um, innovation that that um, will come it's coming and Mustafa, just looking back over the pandemic so far and kind of seeing where we've come from and where we are now, are there any sort of silver linings for you? Look, I think um, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot that's changed um, throughout the pandemic, but I think there is a, a bit of a future for us as well. Um, I think the most important take-home message for me to give to everyone is although this virus has kind of isolated us from everyone else, um, companionship is like the number one thing to think about right now. So um, as uh, Professor Ramon said earlier, um, health isn't just about the absence of disease. It's um, psychological, it's mental. So um, every decision you make, keep in mind that it can affect others. So when you are getting the vaccinated, you are protecting your family. Um, and uh, if you do get sick, that can affect your family as well. Um, but even if you don't get vaccinated or you do get vaccinated, it's always important to check up on your family and, and your friends and um, make sure their mental health is in check. This is a very difficult thing, but we are all doing it together. It's not like we only have one population that's experiencing this. We are all in this together. I know as, as cheesy as that sounds, to be honest. But um, one thing that I have noticed from the pandemic, the kind of silver lining is um, we, are, we are all kind of going in the same boat and um, hopefully we'll all carry each other through to the end. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you all so much, uh, our audience, for joining us today. Just would love to thank um, all of our panellists today, Cheryl, Kirsten, Ramon and Mustafa. And thank you so much for Sydney Ideas for hosting us. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Oh.